Hello, I'm Faisal Pervez, a South Asia analyst here at Stratfor, and this podcast is brought to you by Stratfor Worldview, our premier digital publication for objective geopolitical intelligence and analysis. Individual, team, and enterprise memberships are available at worldview.stratfor.com slash subscribe. Hello, and thank you for joining us for this edition of the Stratfor podcast, focused on geopolitics and world affairs from stratfor.com. I'm your host, Ben Sheen. After more than 20 years, the North American Free Trade Agreement, or NAFTA, will soon get a second look. Following strong rhetoric during the US presidential campaign, the Trump administration is now formally looking to renegotiate the deal and has issued broad goals for what it wants a reshaped deal to look like. In this episode of the Stratfor podcast, we dig into what the future truly holds for NAFTA and global trade deals in general. To explore what changes could really be in store and what their impact could be, Stratfor Vice President of Global Analysis, Riva Gujon, sits down with senior global analyst Matthew Bay, senior science and technology analyst Rebecca Keller, and Latin America analyst Reggie Thompson. Thank you for joining us. Hello, I'm Reva Gajon, and I'm joined by my colleagues here, Matthew Bay, Reggie Thompson, and Rebecca Keller. And given that the North American Free Trade Agreement is set to kick off in its renegotiation cycle starting August 16th with the first round, we are here to discuss NAFTA and its future. Now, this free trade agreement uh, has been in existence for more than 23 years. It took three presidents to negotiate it, all with an eye toward tighter North American integration. And lots has happened in those more than couple decades. I mean, we've seen a quadrupling of trade overall on the continent itself. We've seen major evolutions in trade globally with very tightly integrated supply chains develop where a single good can pass borders multiple times in production prior to final consumption. We've seen things like the U.S. shale boom um, completely and dramatically altering the energy landscape on the continent, uh, while Mexican oil production has essentially plateaued. Um, Since the global financial crisis, we've seen a leveling off of migrant flows from Mexico to the United States. Now, given all this change, Over this long period of time, the argument that this agreement needs updating is not something peculiar to this U.S. administration, although we have seen um, some some a, a lot of protectionist rhetoric coming out of this White House that certainly has garnered a lot of attention. But our core forecast since President Trump has come into office is that the reality will not end up matching the rhetoric and that moderation would ultimately prevail. Now, Matthew, we've already been seeing signs of that moderation trend in play just as these negotiations about are about to kick off. What have we really seen come, come out of this uh, administration just in these recent weeks even? So, I mean, I think, though, we need to start back when the uh, Trump administration in March kind of gave a, a, a first draft of its um, priorities that it wanted to do in the renegotiation. And it included a lot of language that was pretty aggressive at the time. One of the things that we kind of, you know, highlighted, or highlighted as being a significant issue was the concept of equal tax, tax treatment. So that was the idea of uh, Mexico in particular having a VAT, which would essentially from the Trump administration argue that they have a export subsidy and there would be a way to countervail 
scale that to level the tax um, playing field. And that could be a way to justify a 20% import tax or something like that. We've seen that rhetoric um, kind of basically disappear. We saw the new um, NAFTA priorities list come out last week, and that, that wasn't even on there. Um, now, that doesn't mean that the White House has, you know, you know, completely gone away from its protectionist rhetoric, but it's been moderated, as you as you said. And that's kind of the significant thing that we've seen there. And the whole idea of updating um, NAFTA, it's it, like you said, it's not unique to Trump. This is actually something that was a huge debate in the 2008 election cycle. Both Hillary Clinton and then-candidate uh, Barack Obama actually had that as a key part of their platform. And we actually saw, in some degree, you can argue that the, the Trump or the um, Obama administration actually achieved that objective. They did that through TPP. TPP was a much broader relationship than NAFTA. It included a lot more countries. It wasn't just three, but included a lot of updates to what NAFTA was in a lot of areas that would have superseded NAFTA. Um, now, obviously, Trump has a very different tone. He, he got rid of TPP. That's not going to happen. But when we look at the different ways that the USTR now, so the US Trade Representative, wants to update NAFTA, we see hallmarks of TPP in some ways. We see some differences, some hallmarks. Um, and we can kind of draw, uh, basically drop these into three buckets that the US is trying to, to look at. And at the, at the core of it is still this idea of reducing the trade deficit in, in whatever ways possible. That was not a core objective of the uh, Obama administration when negotiating TPP, and you could make an argument that the TPP might have actually added to the trade deficit. Whether that's good or bad for the economy, that's obviously a very sticky subject in the United States. Which and is, obviously complicated given exactly. these very integrated supply chains. Right. And speaking of you know the integrated supply chains, one of the core issues in that bucket is what are called rules of origin. So rules of origin are basically laws and licenses that basically um, – allow you to qualify for being part of getting free trade access. So in the case of, for example, a car, these are generally around 45%. So that means you have to have 45% of the of the product's value produced in NAFTA countries to um, then be eligible for, um, for NAFTA. Um, this was actually going to be lowered under TPP. Trump's White House has actually decided to try to make it strengthen those rules to make it actually even higher standards to get involved in NAFTA. The argument there would be by boosting that, boosting these requirements to go, say, to 70% or 75%, whatever the number finally ends up being, that then boosts regional manufacturing. Some of that's going to happen in the United States. That might mean that the trade deficit between the United States and Mexico may not go down because of it, but the United States' trade deficit with the rest of the world or NAFTA's trade deficit with the rest of the world might go down. And that's where that North American integration trend exactly. stays very much on track. Let's go back to your earlier point, though, on um, you know when we talk about what is being gleaned from the Trans-Pacific Partnership or TPP framework, how we see those elements being applied to this NAFTA renegotiation. So the first bucket that we were talking about was this idea of boosting U.S. exports, limiting U.S. imports, and reducing the U.S. trade deficit. The second bucket, however, deals with updating NAFTA to the 21st century. That w- TPP was an agreement that was supposed, considered to be relatively revolutionary in, in, in a lot of ways. It included a lot of things that were not um, a part of previous multilateral big trade agreements, which is why it took so long to negotiate and why it was a very difficult negotiation, because working through these deal or these different details for the first time was kind of significant. Um, so some of these will include like stronger um, IP rights, so intellectual property, um, including digital trade. So one of the things that the White House wants to make sure is that we don't start to see um, trade barriers such as tariffs on 
um, digital trade that goes between Mexico and the United States, Canada, the United States, et cetera. Um, and then just broadly speaking, trade and services to begin with. So a, a key aspect of this, and this plays into a number of different issues. I mean, IP isn't so much just related to the digital sector or the trade and services sector, but it's a broader issue in this concept of IP rights that falls into things like manufactured goods or agricultural goods. So, I mean, I think agricultural is an interesting aspect of what we're going to see in the NAFTA negotiations. Absolutely, Matthew. It's uh, agriculture, along with manufacturing, has been targeted as one of the, the key focuses of this renegotiation. And, and the agriculture industry in general has been a little on edge, um, given the uncertainty. But as far as IP rights go, that's that's where the future of agriculture is with genetic engineering, with um precision agriculture and, and the use of big data to improve agricultural methods. So incorporating those kind of updates will be will be key to um, continuing the the agricultural trade relationship within within NAFTA and the North American integration. Um, specifically, um, I think we can look at TPP as a model um, for what's reasonable uh, in terms of, of updated agricultural trade agreements and that and that we'll be looking at, at biotech uh, reducing or eliminating um, non-trade tariff barriers um, for biotech. Um, and that's really in the U.S.'s interest as one of the leaders in, in genetic uh, modification and genetic engineering technology. And the other thing we'd look at is reform or cooperation in phytosanitary procedures. So there's, there's no um, incongruency between countries there. Yeah, and that last point was actually one of the key, um, just better, like broader points that the, the the Trump administration has actually outlined five or six different conditions that they're going to try to be negotiating on. But one of the things that you mentioned, kind of as an aside comment that I want to go back to, was this concept of big data. So the the idea of data being a new commodity is something that is some is has grown quite significantly over the last five years, at least. Um, that was something that obviously did not exist when NAFTA was negotiated in the late early 1990s, late 1980s. So can you tell me how that actually has become much more of an integral part of the international economy and more specifically the NAFTA economy. When you're looking at, at, at increased automation and how technology is changing, how every industry functions right now, you can't ignore the fact that it's all based on data. And the data is 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 the commodity, as you said. And and if we don't account for that in, in new trade agreements, they're, they're not going to be relevant five, 10 years down the road. So in many ways, this NAFTA renegotiation is going to be breaking new ground and, and setting precedents for how digital trade uh, will be incorporated into free trade agreements that go well beyond this one. I think so. But I think TPP kind of already did that to a certain degree because it included those aspects. Now, obviously, Trump's going to have a different slant on it. That's fine. But it is something that we're going to have we're going to see as the model trade agreement like and it's interesting to look at this. If we talk about TPP and then maybe now this NAFTA renegotiation being a, a model agreement or maybe the uh, uh, free trade agreement that's um, currently ongoing negotiations between the EU and Japan is that these are model, model agreements, but so is NAFTA. If you think about it way back when is NAFTA was this first multilateral trade agreement. It, it predated WTO, for instance. Mm-hmm. So, so it is now a common theme that we're starting to see is that sometimes we see these kind of landmark trade agreements coming in that, that redefine the way that people view trade agreements. And that's kind of one of the reasons why people are so interested in TPP or NAFTA from a broader um from a broader viewpoint than just, you know, the old standard trade is in goods and that kind of a thing and tariffs, stuff like that. Um, and then finally, um, the last bucket of the United States policy is this idea of reasserting national sovereignty. Now, this was not something that the Obama administration had put on a an, on a high footing. This is something that is very clear about the Trump administration's policies when you look at, you know, this whole nationalistic rhetoric, the whole nationalism I, identity that, that Trump embodies in many ways. 
Um, so there are kind of two really key things, and these could be actually really relatively sticking points when we talk about actual negotiations going forward. One of them is eliminating this global safeguard restriction. So a, this is very controversial because right now, if the United States were to put in safeguard measures, so a safeguard measure is essentially um, temporary import restrictions on a very specific narrow um, category of products where an industry has had undue harm or un, or significant harm that is not expected. Um, right now, if the U.S. were to put these measures into place, Canada and Mexico would not would not be under them. Usually these are to protect your industries when they have problems. So the Trump administration wants to make sure that if there is a problem, Canada and Mexican imports can actually call, go under this global safeguard. Now, safeguard mechanisms are a really interesting thing when we talk about the WTO. If the Trump administration actually tries to put into place safeguard mechanisms, even even without this global mechan, uh, global safeguard restriction, that's going to be challenged by the WTO, not only possibly by Canada or Mexico, but the EU or whoever is affected the most. And this is actually something where the Trump administration might actually lose a case. In other words, under that protectionist and more nationalist orientation of this administration, safeguard mechanisms is a key tool that we can expect to be used or attempted uh, to be used in in trying to level out that playing field, so to speak, even within NAFTA, within Canada the, and Mexico. The question is, will it work? And, that's, mm-hmm. and that brings up a, a debate that's, that's a really broader debate than just NAFTA, which is, what is Trump going to be doing with the WTO? Mm-hmm. That is a really significant thing. And then the last issue that is a significant one is the Chapter 19 settlement mechanism. Or the Chapter 19 settlement mechanism allows for anti-dumping and countervailing duty investigations to go before a bi-national panel instead of going through the domestic court system. This is something that Canada in particular, and then also to a certain extent Mexico, really wanted to get in, into the deal in the first place. Um, Canada's uh, negotiate, lead negotiator during the 1980s basically has said that was the sticking point. If we didn't have that, we might not have signed the deal. Um, so this is a thing where the Trump administration wants to bring back these investigations within the NAFTA countries back to the U.S. court system. Um, so that does definitely play into making sure that the U.S. laws are applied without having to, you know, go to a, a, a body that's not U.S. necessarily dominated or U.S. centric. So that very much fits into this this whole idea of reasserting national sovereignty. We'll return to our conversation on the future of NAFTA with Stratfor's Riva Gujon, Matthew Bay, Rebecca Keller, and Reggie Thompson in a few moments. But if you're enjoying the conversation, be sure to visit us at worldview.stratfor.com. Global trade, economic development, and the geopolitical constraints facing nations are issues we explore daily in our published analyses, reflections, and partner commentaries, as well as our quarter, year, and decade forecasts. If you're not already a Worldview member, Consider subscribing if you want sober, unbiased analysis on these issues and broader world affairs. Individual, team, and enterprise subscriptions are available at worldview.stratfor.com slash subscribe. We'll also include a link in the show notes. Now let's get back to the second part of our conversation on the future of NAFTA. Mexico now let's let's see from the Mexican perspective on how it's viewing this renegotiation the key sticking points talking points and what is its strategy moving forward Reggie from the Mexican perspective, the main priority in the lead up to the talks has been to find ways in which it can shape the talks to try to move them towards its uh, its desired outcome, which is to maintain preferential access to the u s market Mexico is relatively um, 
weaken these negotiations uh, compared to the United States simply because uh, the, Uni- the Mexican economy relies so much on the United States domestic market uh, for its export growth. Uh, things like Mexican manufacturing uh, is deeply integrated into United States supply chains, and it depends greatly on uh, growth in the United States market. But essentially what we've been seeing is Mexico moving from uh, essentially surprise after the election of Donald Trump to seeking avenues with which to shape the negotiations, things like lobbying in the United States, uh, bilateral visits, meetings with governors of states that would be negatively affected by uh, the disintegration of NAFTA, for example. And so all of this has really been how Mexico has moved to try to lobby for its preferred outcome. It's also hung the threat, um, so to speak, of importing more agricultural products from South America, from the Brazil, from Argentina, from Uruguay, the states that make up the common market of the South, in case um, NAFTA falls apart. So really, this, this, um, this negative effect on U.S. agriculture is something that Mexico has held up as a potential negative side effect of uh, failing to engage in NAFTA talks. And so far, Mexico has been rather uh, rather successful in this. The United States is moving towards a more moderate um, stance, both because of its own internal domestic politics, but also because Mexico has made the negative aspects of pulling out of NAFTA rather rather prevalent. It's, it's uh, attracted, it's, it's drawn visibility to these, so to speak, in recent months. And on the agricultural front, though, it's not just a threat. We've actually seen Mexico, uh, you know, actually follow through in trying to develop those agricultural links uh, further south. Exactly. Mexico is obviously they're hoping for the best, but preparing for the worst in a certain sense. Um, And diversification of trade away from the United States, no matter how slow, is something that's high on the priority of the Mexican government. So we've seen Mexico start discussions with uh, countries like Argentina and Brazil to try to increase um, shipments or, excuse me, imports of agricultural products, things like beef, soy, corn, pork, all products that the United States exports to Mexico. Um, The Mexicans are looking to get these in Argentina and Brazil as well. And simply because of uh, Brazil's growing, uh, growing exports of soy, we started to see Brazilian soy making inroads into Mexico. And uh, that that's probably set to continue for coming years. And Rebecca, this is something you've been tracking very closely, given that it's a it's a big concern for a number of agri- agricultural producers in the United States. As as you put it earlier in conversation, we know millennials love their avocado toast, um, and there are a number of key products here at stake. If Mexico, uh, you know, depending on how far Mexico can go in in supplementing uh, trade with the United States. Right. And I think that's where it's a very important distinction to make pulling out of NAFTA versus renegotiating NAFTA. NAFTA completely changed how Americas ate. Basically, it introduced a lot more fruits and vegetables into into everyday diet. You have access to certain things year round now. They're cheaper. uh, And the flow went the opposite way to Mexico. Um, when you look at that 25-year relationship, that's not going to break overnight. You've got livestock operations that cross borders. You've, you've got animals that are born in Canada or animals that are born in Mexico that are then shipped to the United States to be processed and then shipped back to those countries to be consumed. Um, so that's not going to break down overnight. But, but as you see, Mexico is preparing for the worst, which would be a pullout from NAFTA. That being said, Far, uh, the agricultural industry in the United States does favor a renegotiation of NAFTA. And that goes back to the points I was making earlier about the increased automation, increased uh, technological reliance of the agricultural industry in the United States. 
and how uh, trade negotiations and trade deals need to be modified to address that in agriculture and in other industries moving forward. So even as we're seeing moderation in the details of this renegotiation, there is still a heavy layer of nationalist and protectionist rhetoric coming out of the White House. Naturally, that has an effect across the border in Mexico. Um, Reggie, what's the political dynamic that we've been seeing developing in Mexico City in what is already election season over there? It's important to note that the NAFTA renegotiation process is going to overlap significantly with the Mexican 2018 presidential electoral season. And so what we're going to what we've been seeing so far and we're going to continue seeing is um, a nationalist backlash in Mexico where that nationalist backlash um, is probably going to benefit Andres Manuel López Obrador, who is um, he's not an outsider politician, but he is the head of the upstart National Regeneration Movement. He formerly ran twice um, on the Party of the Democratic Revolution ticket for president, narrowly losing the first time to Felipe Calderón of the National Action Party. And so López Obrador is a concern, particularly for the private sector in Mexico and the United States, uh, because he's an unknown quantity. He's never held um, a public office uh, in, in, in Congress, for example. He's never held a cabinet position, and he's definitely never been president. And so, to some degree, the business, the private business sector in both countries, they, they don't really know what to expect with him. But with, with López Obrador, what we're going to be seeing is, even if he is more leftist or populist in orientation than other potential uh, presidential candidates, if he comes to power, he's going to be constrained by Mexican institutions simply because even if he's president, he may not be he may not have a majority in Congress. It would be very difficult for his party, given the fragmentation in Mexico among four major political parties. Um, it would be very hard for that party to gain a majority in Congress. So while things like presidential directives um, to change specific aspects of 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 uh, energy reform, for example, the pace of bidding rounds, things like that, would be possible, it would be harder for him to affect things that fundamentally um, influence the economic relationship with the United States or the political relationship with the United States. For example, energy reform would not be fundamentally changed under a López Obrador government. Uh, the, The constitutional underpinnings and the legislative underpinnings would not be changed. Still, this could have an effect um, because taxation and 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 the pace of bidding rounds pertaining to energy reform that would definitely be between, that would definitely be in the president's power to change uh, moving out of the economic realm and more into the realm of security and political interests for the United States, um, things like the security strategy, what Mexico does uh, in countering drug cartels, for example, it would be very hard for a López Obrador presidency to change that um, unilaterally without just running into a lot of resistance domestically. So as we were saying, it, a nationalist backlash could end up in a nationalist candidate being elected in Mexico, but his power would most decidedly be limited. He would not be able to simply come into power and fundamentally change the way Mexico works. Um, He'd definitely have to work within the institutions, and we'd see a moderating effect, much like what we've seen in the United States with President Trump. Right. I mean, there is certainly um, effects that can be drawn from, you know, a more difficult uh, president in Mexico and more difficult relations between the United States and Mexico overall. Certainly a number of investors are going to be looking at a potential Obrador win um, and looking at just how many regulatory hurdles, for example, they're going to have to cross um, and and just looking at the investment climate overall. But as you 
say, those institutional constraints, and I'm sure our listeners have, have been hearing that word a lot, it, it is something that's very much embedded in our geopolitical model in making sure that when we do see extreme rhetoric that sets the world on edge, as we certainly have seen over the course of this past year, to really hone in on what are those limitations, those institutional constraints that ultimately are likely to moderate the the final result, the policy direction in the end. And certainly I think this NAFTA renegotiation fits into that category. Now, this is something that not only, um, you know, observers and stakeholders on the North American continent are going to be following closely, but other trading partners with the United States as well. Uh, you know, there's already, um, you know, efforts underway to kick off a renegotiation of the U.S.-Korea, uh, South Korea uh, free trade agreement. Uh, the U.K., in the midst of its Brexit negotiations with the European Union, um, is also trying to get informal talks uh, going on a free trade agreement with the United States. A number of countries are going to be looking at this NAFTA renegotiation as a precedent uh, for how their own trade negotiations will go. And again, what elements, um, those moderating elements uh, um, that we see and modernization elements that we see um, get drawn from the Trans-Pacific Partnership uh, negotiation that may be dead in the United States, but remains very relevant in these trade negotiations overall. So our team will be watching very closely on Stratfor Worldview, and we thank you for joining us today. That concludes this episode of the Stratford podcast. If you enjoyed today's conversation, be sure to catch up on our latest analysis on this and related topics at worldview.stratford.com. We'll include links to related analysis in the show notes. And if you're not already a member, be sure to subscribe for unparalleled insights on global trends now and forecasts on future developments. If you have a question or a comment about the podcast, or even an idea for a future episode, let us know. You can call us at 1-512-744-4300, extension 3917, or reach us by email at podcast at stratfor.com. And don't forget to leave us a review. We really appreciate your feedback. Your review also helps others discover the podcast. It just takes a few moments. You can leave a review on iTunes or wherever you subscribe to the podcast. And for more geopolitical intelligence, analysis, and forecasting that brings global events into valuable perspective, Follow us on Twitter at Stratfor. Thanks for listening.